you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are so excited to talk to Stephen Kulig, Associate Director at the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Stephen earned his Bachelor of Science degree in economics from UW-Madison in 2007. After graduation, he spent over six years working as a legislative assistant in the Wisconsin Senate. During the final three years in the legislature, he attended the La Follette School part-time, earning his master's degree in public affairs in 2014. After graduating, he joined the Wisconsin Department of Health Services as a budget and policy analyst, and then joined the school as an administrator and career services coordinator in April 2016, before becoming the school's associate director in 2018. We'll be asking Stephen about his time on campus as an undergrad, his experience as a legislative assistant and as a budget analyst, his decision to pursue an MPA, and about his current leadership role at La Follette. Thank you so much for being with us today, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's just jump right in and start talking about your background and kind of getting into school academically. You were an undergrad here at UW-Madison and economics. And we're wondering, did you know that you wanted to pursue that from the beginning? And what kind of shaped your interest there? Yeah, it's funny. I actually was originally a business major, so I knew I wanted to go to UW-Madison. Uh, and I started freshman year as a pre-business major. So I knew I had to take a certain number of classes and then apply to the business school. But I figured out pretty quickly that it was not what I was excited about. A number of the classes just weren't something I was interested in. In particular, I just really didn't enjoy accounting. Uh, it just, I didn't understand it. I didn't perform well. So it just was not a fan. The other weird thing is I got a sense that the business school was very competitive. I, I noticed that I was going to need to excel in my classes just to get into the business school. So that wasn't very exciting for me. But part of my pre-business curriculum was taking Econ 101 and Econ 102. And I really enjoyed those classes. I just love the con content of that. So because of that, I went to the Econ advisor at, uh, at UW at the time and after that conversation, I just decided to switch over to econ and pretty quickly realized that was the right direction. I started taking some intermediate level econ courses, so public finance, labor economics, uh, statistics, and just fell in love with the material. So from there on with my undergrad, I really wanted to focus on econ and in particular public finance. So that's how it kind of evolved. And I eventually found and fell in love with econ. After graduating in 2007, you worked at the Capitol as a legislative assistant. How did that come about? Yeah, I actually started as an intern at the Capitol my last semester in undergrad. So I just saw a job opening and decided to apply. And I remember actually talking about that public finance course that I just mentioned and how excited I was to learn how legislators and policymakers actually made policy. And obviously, I got the job uh, as an intern, uh, worked there for about 15 hours per week. 
And as I was getting closer to graduation, I was getting more interested in the work and I just got really lucky. I, I was working really hard, but they happened to have an opening in that office. So after graduation, they asked me to stay on full time, which I gladly accepted. So I went from being an intern that you, you're typically you know, taking calls from constituents, uh, drafting letters to have the staff and the legislator review to send out. And after graduation, I became one of those staff members. So that's really how my career started at the Capitol. And it was just, you know, seeing an internship opportunity and applying for it. And just as a side note, what does that work entail for people in this major that might be interested in doing something similar? Yeah, so it's it's a couple different things. Um, so I worked in the state Senate office, so we had four staff members. And it depends on how they shake it up. But in, in my office in particular, uh, you know, we all focused on different constituent related issues. So, for example, I would help the senator work on environmental or natural resource issues, helped uh, work on education issues, things like that. So a big part of the job is uh, direct contact with constituents, whether that's through phone calls, emails, things like that. Then the other side of the job is really working on policy. So I was lucky when I started the full-time job that my boss was in the majority, which means we were able to shape public policy. So we were staffing committees, getting legislation written, getting legislation through committees onto the Senate floor, and really negotiating with legislators from the other side of the aisle. And at that time, the Senate was democratically led and the Assembly was Republican-led, so there had to be this compromise and negotiation. And I really appreciated that part of it because when a, a bill passed into law, you knew that there was this agreement and compromise between the two. So a big part of my job was communication among my own colleagues, but others across the aisle. So that was a really fun part of it. It was really getting to understand how legislation went through the process and actually became law. Are there any hard or soft skills outside the classroom you might recommend to undergrads to develop right now to get really you know, competitive for these positions at the Capitol? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say, it's probably going to sound simple, but making sure that you can demonstrate that you're organized, that you communicate well, that you're punctual. I, I remember actually back when I was an intern, we did a mid-semester review with staff, and the first thing they said is that they liked that I showed up on time, and I laughed, but then they said, well, actually, all the other interns, they either show up late or sometimes they don't show up at all, so the idea of just showing up, working hard, was probably the biggest reason they were willing to give me a full-time position uh, at the Capitol. So I really, without even realizing, it's just how I approached things, but that was one of the big reasons why I was able to succeed and get into that position. But more specifically, if you're interested in a position within the legislature, I, there are a couple different ways of doing it. One is through an internship, but even to get to that internship, Getting involved in public service, whether it's volunteering with organizations um, or political campaigns can be really helpful. I think it is really important to note that when you're working in the Capitol, it's more policy than politics, which was my preference, but there's certainly pol politics that bleed into it, of course. But yeah, the other thing is with any job, and this is the same with the Capitol, trying to understand why you want to work there when you're applying for those positions, being fascinated or interested in what the, either the particular legislator is working on what they're passionate about, or just trying to be in, or just being interested in what and how legislators make decisions. And I'd also say, if you have the opportunity to apply for these types of jobs, doing your research ahead of time, you should be able to find out 
what legislators are working on, what they care about. So when you're going into an interview or applying, you're able to set yourself up for success. So doing the legwork of volunteering, getting experience, but then doing the research ahead of time when you're actually able and ready to apply for a position like this. That's actually some pretty good advice. Do your research. <laughs> yep. After several years as a legislative assistant, you returned to grad school. Did you know you wanted to pursue postgraduate work in public policy early on, or did that come later? Yeah, I actually never thought that I would go back to school. My expectation is that I would have the opportunity to continue to grow in my role at the Capitol. But for those who don't know, your job at the Capitol is based on elections. Um, so in uh, November of 2010, it was a tight race, but unfortunately, my boss lost his re-election race, which means everyone on staff will lose their job too, which I think is something that a lot of people don't realize, that it's not just the policymaker, the legislator that loses their job. So I had a couple months. I had the job until January to figure things out. So I started scrambling, and what I started doing was reaching out to colleagues that I had met and started asking them for advice. I also started prepping applications for other positions in the Capitol. But there's one meeting that stood out with a colleague who had been uh, a graduate of the La Follette School. And well, first he suggested that I should go to law school. And I said, that is not something I'm interested in. But he then said, well, what about the La Follette School? And I had heard about the La Follette School, but didn't know much about it. So I did some research. I set up an appointment with the admissions advisor at the time. That's what made me decide to apply. And that was still before I knew what my future was going to be after I was going to lose my current job. But in between the time I applied and knew that I got in, I actually was able to get another job in the Capitol with another legislator. So when I got the great news that I was accepted into the Lafollette School, I made the decision that I wanted to stay in the Capitol. And that's why I ended up going to the Lafollette School part-time. So I wanted to keep the, the full-time position. And then it took me an, an additional year, but I was uh, able to get my LaFollette degree over three years. Was working a bit before you went back to grad school helpful, or do you think there's no harm in jumping right into it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends on your, your personal preference. Uh, for me, spending a few years in the workforce was really beneficial. I don't think I would have been ready for grad school right after undergrad. And I, of course, was lucky enough to have a job right out of undergrad and build some of those skills. So I was out of undergrad into the workforce for about three and a half years before I came back to school. And that felt really good for me. But it depends on who you are. So, for example, my cohort, my classmates at the Fault School, there was a wide range of students who were coming right out of undergrad uh, to students who had been in the workforce for over 10 years. And I actually really liked that mix because when we were class discussions, everyone would have these different perspectives. So it was fun to get a sense from those right out of undergrad because they have this perspective. They also know how to study, which was something I forgot how to do so I could work with them. But then hearing from people who had been in different positions all across the country and even the world was really interesting to listen to as well. So my biggest piece of advice is there's no reason to rush going to grad school. So, you know, it's great if you have an advanced degree at 24, but you don't have to. So I would say just don't feel pressure right out of undergrad to jump into a graduate program. If the timing is right and it, it, it makes sense for you, that's great. 
but do not feel like going into the workforce is going to be a detriment because it, it definitely can be a benefit. Um, and it was for me. Wise words. So after receiving your MPA, you went back to Wisconsin politics and worked as a budget analyst for the Department of Human Services. What does the work of a budget analyst look like? Yeah, I'll admit it probably sounds pretty boring, but this was exactly what I went to the La Follette School for to get one of these, these policy jobs. So as I was getting close to graduating in spring of 2014, my, my boss who I was working for at the time was also planning to graduate, or excuse me, planning to retire at the end of the year. So it was a perfect time for me to start looking for other opportunities. I had decided because of the work I was doing at the La Follette School that I was ready to move on to a different position outside of the Capitol. And I, you know, cast a wide net. I was looking for a lot of different positions, many of them within Wisconsin state agencies. I knew I wanted to stay in the, the state of Wisconsin. And I was able to seek, secure this Department of Health Services position as a budget analyst um, within the Bureau of Fiscal Management uh, and, and within the Medicaid division. So what that essentially means is that I was helping uh, to analyze the financials of Wisconsin's Medicaid program, which amounts to billions and billions of dollars uh, in federal and state funds. So it's a huge, complicated program. So it was a little overwhelming my first day, just getting you know dropped a book of what Medicaid in Wisconsin is, but um, it, was, it was a great challenge. So specifically what I did in that role was worked with Wisconsin's 72 counties and tribal entities to help them operate their mental health programs. So counties in the state and tribal entities are required to provide these types of services to their citizens, but often they're covered in Medicaid reimbursable. But as you can imagine, these reimburse, re reimbursable policies can be quite complicated. So my job was to work directly with the county officials to help them make sure they were submitting their costs correctly, if they had questions about what was reimbursable and what wasn't, we were able to help them out. So it was interesting because at the Capitol, I was directly helping constituents um, with their, their problems and their issues. At DHS, I was still helping because I was helping county officials help citizens, but it still felt like I was making a difference. So even though I was mostly crunching numbers, helping people follow policies, it, it still felt like I was helping making sure these important mental health programs were being administered efficiently and effectively. Let's jump into your work at La Follette. Your goals and missions as an associate director, what were those coming into the gate? Yeah, so, you know, one thing I want to mention is the, the mission of the La Follette School, and I, and I have it here because I want to get it right because we really think it is important. So our mission is to train leaders and conduct research to inspire evidence-based policymaking and to advance the public good. So really, as the associate director of the La Follette School, I feel like it is my job to make sure whatever we're doing we're advancing that mission. So there are a few specific ways that I try to do that. So first of all, I am uh, in, in charge of managing all of our staff. So we, we've been growing as a staff. We're now up to 17 total and we were broken into four different teams. So we have student services, obviously helping um, students through the program, our outreach team, our IT team, and then our administrative team. And it's my job to make sure they have the resources they need to be successful. And they do an amazing job um, of uh, pushing the mission of the La Follette School as well. Um, and it reminds me of the skills I learned at the La Follette School in terms of public management, just understanding how to organize and run a public uh, entity, 
has been really valuable to me. The other thing I do in this position is help manage our curriculum and making sure our faculty have what they need to succeed. So I work really closely with faculty and staff to set our graduate and undergraduate curriculum. So again, I mentioned we've been growing, so that's more and more classes each semester. So it gets, it's like this complicated puzzle that we're putting together. There's a lot of things to manage, but it's really fun to kind of put those, those puzzles together. The last thing I'd mention is that I serve as a resource to students, and I'd say this is the most important piece. So I understand as a former Fallout student, your time goes by very quickly if you're here for just two years. So whether that's meeting with student leadership, working directly with students who have questions or concerns about the program, just making sure I'm there as a resource to, to see that their, their expectations are exceeded at the at the La Follette School when they come here. So again, they're here for a short period of time. We want to make sure they're building the skills that they need, but also they have the community that uh, they're excited to come and have at the La Follette School as well. So you touched on things getting more popular and getting in more demand. The undergraduate certificate in public policy is really popular and growing among majors. What are some new and exciting undergraduate courses that you guys have coming up? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so our, our current certificate in public policy has been growing very quickly. It's only a couple years old, um, but already uh, some of our core courses have really strong demand. So I'll mention a handful of courses that I think students might be really interested in learning a little bit more about. Um, so the, the first few are gonna be kind of our bread and butter of our certificate. So um, our intro course is uh, PA 200. So that's contemporary public policy issues and really just gives you a lay of the land of you know, what is public policy. So we've had a couple faculty teach that course, Professor Tim Smeeting, who is an expert in social policy, and a, a, one of our newer members at the La Follette School, Professor Denia Garcia, who's been doing a great job with this course. Um, they bring in a, a number of public uh, or guest speakers, and they just give you a really good sense of what it's like to study and research public policy. Um, another course, PA380, is our uh, main analyst tools course. So this is a course if you're a student that wants to get a sense of what tools do public policy experts use to analyze and understand if a policy is good public policy based on the evidence. So it's a really interesting course to jump into uh, and that's been taught by a few of our faculty including Professor Lindsay Jacobs and then Professors Christine Durant and Reed Lee who are both relatively new to the La Follette School too and Reed Lee being a, a split appointment with the political science department as well. One other main course that I'll mention is PA 240, which is um, evidence-based policymaking. And this is an interesting course because you can imagine policy is complicated, but this course helps you understand how do you translate that and talk to policymakers about it? How do you get them to understand something really complex? So that's a really important question if you want policymakers to understand and want to get excited about that issue. So that's going to be taught this fall by a new, our newest faculty member, Mariel Barnes, who will be here in Madison in the fall. And then very quickly, just a couple other courses that are um, relatively new. Um, Professor Tana Johnson, who also has a split appointment with political science, is teaching a, a PA 274 uh, public and private sectors and policymaking, really talking about how the, the difference between public and private sectors are slowly dissipating, which is a really interesting concept. And then we have an adjunct, uh, Roger Irvin, who actually is a former Department of Revenue Secretary under former Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle, teaching our PA 278 public leadership course. And 
that course really gets into how do you run a public entity and how is that different than a private entity? So, you know, it reminds me of how I manage the, the fall at school on a day-to-day basis. So that's another exciting class that will be taught this fall. So there's more to come. Um, you know, demand continues to grow for the certificate, but we're just really excited about it. Speaking of certificates, um, you'll also be offering a new health policy certificate. What's the, what's the details on that? Yeah, so, you know, off the success of the, the public policy certificate and given how many experts do we have on our faculty related to health policy, we thought this was just a natural transition to starting this health policy certificate. So it's been officially approved by campus, which we're really excited about. The first application period for students, if they're interested, will open up this November. So we're, we're going to have our first cohort in the spring of, I guess, what would that be, 22. So we're getting, getting close to an actual certificate and cohort in the health policy world. And we're already starting to teach courses in health policy, even though it's just been approved and on the books. So just quickly to, to mention a couple of those, PA201 is our intro to health policy in the United States. This is very similar to that PA200 intro course in our public policy certificate. Uh, and that will be taught by or has been taught by Professor Christine Durant, who I've mentioned previously, and also a newer staff member, Mary Michaud, who has a ton of health policy experience, uh, both on campus and out uh, outside of campus. So, and she'll be teaching that this spring as well. So something that students can get excited about. And then a couple others I'll mention, 281 is discovering what works in health policy. This is really asking the question, so once a policy is implemented, how do we know if it is successful? How do we know if it's working? This course talks about the tools you can use to really analyze if a policy actually works. And that's being taught by Professor Yang Wang, uh, and she's been doing an amazing job in this program evaluation type course. And then finally, a really interesting uh, course is PA 523, Policy, Privacy, and Personal Identity in the Postgenomics Era. So I know it's a really long title, but basically it boils down to, we've been learning more and more about social genomics. What does that implicate social and public policy? It's an interesting question. And that's being taught by a newer faculty member named Lauren Schmidt. So that's typically taught once during the academic year. So we're all excited about the health policy certificate. And we expect these types of courses just to grow in number uh, over the next year or so. I know we've touched on quite a few new and cool things, but are there any projects or initiatives coming down the pike that we haven't mentioned that maybe you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I'll mention a couple things the coal initiative. So this was a couple years ago, we were able to receive graciously a $10 million gift from former Senator Herb Cole. And really this gift, the goal of this gift was to do three things, expand public outreach through La Follette, train future public leaders, which is essentially continuing to teach more students and support influential research of our faculty. So we've been talking a lot about these certificates and that's where these, this train future future public leaders comes into play. So this initiative has really helped us expand the certificate, both in the public policy realm and now health policy. So we're excited about the, where this initiative is going to be going and helping us expand uh, how we can bring this type of work, uh, research and teaching to our students. So we're really excited about that. It's also allowed us to hire a number of new faculty and new staff to help support students as they're coming in and, and the certificates are growing at La Follette. And then one thing, I'll, one last thing I'll mention about the COAL initiative is going to that expanding public outreach. 
we've been able to put on these higher level public events through this initiative. So back in March, 2019, we held our very first La Follette Forum and it was on health policy. And we had over 300 attendees come to the Monona Terrace and get, get a chance to talk to policymakers, people who are experts in health policy. It was great to see that number of people come together and talk about such an important issue. Fast forward to this October, we're ready to hold our second La Follette Forum. This time it'll be on climate policy. So there's details in the works, but we're again, planning on bringing in experts from across the country to come in and talk about obviously a very important issue in climate policy. So we'll have more details out as the date nears, but we're excited about that as well. And then one other thing I wanted to mention that has come out over the last year or so, LaFalla has developed this series called Elevating Equity in Policymaking. And this came about after a town hall discussion, which was remote during the pandemic and shortly after George Floyd's murder. And students really were talking about wanting a space and an opportunity to talk to people practically about how equity and policy intersect. So one of our staff members, Bonnie McRitchie, took it upon herself to develop this, this talking series. And we've held a couple so far and both have been LaFollet alumni. The first one, Theola Carter, who currently works at Dane County's Tamara Grigsby Office of Equity and Inclusion. And then the second one was Francis Huntley Cooper, who's the first and only black elected mayor in Wisconsin. So they came in, had a chance to talk to students and really they focused on how they push equitable policy in local government and why that's so important. And students really engaged in this conversation. I'll also mention it was moderated by one of our graduate students, Particia Lawrence, who did an amazing job. So I wanted to mention this, we'll continue to have these types of talks this summer and into the fall and spring. But this is just one example of what La Follette students have access to. So if you're thinking about the certificate or the graduate program, these are the types of talks from policymakers or, or people that just care about these types of issues. We'll be bringing them in to talk to students. So you yourself teach a professional development workshop. Maybe we can pick your brain a little bit. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit of advice to students about making their applications stronger. Yeah, so I've been teaching our PA 800 professional development workshop for our graduate students. So this is a required course that they all have to take their first semester. So treat looking for a job or an internship like a, a class, set time you know, aside to make sure you are putting the work in and ask for help. You know, we have amazing career advisors on campus. Uh, you know, ask your classmates, your colleagues, your family to help you practice interviews, things like that. So they're all little things, but it's just all putting in the work and it'll pay off. It always does. So it, it just sometimes takes a little bit of time. What would you say is the importance of LinkedIn? Is it as important as we think? Is it not? Who knows? Do you know? It's such a great question because I think people are all across the board on LinkedIn. Um, so I think it absolutely can work for some. I've, I've had very specific testimonials from students that said, I got an opportunity because I was on LinkedIn or I was able to get this position. Others aren't as excited about it. I think it's like anything, you, you get what you put into it. But from my perspective, it can be a great way to connect with alumni or learn about organizations that you're about to apply for. So that could help with the research a little bit. I'd say my biggest advice, if you're using LinkedIn and you probably should have a LinkedIn account is make sure that it's up to date, make sure it's, it's showing the, the experience and skills that you have. 
Because when you start applying for positions, there's a good chance that organizations, employers are going to Google and search for your LinkedIn profile. So make sure it's as up to date as it as you possibly can make it and just be ready to know that others may be looking at it. So it's tough to know how important it is, but I would say the biggest mistake you can make is have a LinkedIn profile that is not up to date and is difficult for employees to to know what your actual skills are. Some alumni who hired tell us that cover letters are not as important as they used to be. Should we be prioritizing our resume or should we keep putting in the work on our cover letters? That's another great question. So I would agree with the sentiment that a resume and a strong resume is the most important part of an application. But I would say if there is a requirement for a cover letter within an application, you absolutely have to take it seriously for for a couple of reasons. Your cover letter can serve as a writing sample. So if you're just, if an organization is just requiring uh, a cover letter and resume, that may be the only thing that they see that you write. So it is often they will base how well you are at writing on the cover letter. The other reason why I think cover letters have gone, have become less important is because students don't, and people in general, don't utilize them as strongly as they can. So when you're writing a cover letter, it's not just expanding on your resume, it's really taking a look at the position description, seeing what very specific responsibilities and skills that the employer wants, and telling a story about how you can connect your experience to those specific skills. So it may only be two or three things, but really elaborating on and talking about specific examples. I worked on this project and it, it resulted in this, you know, talking about the outcomes. Um, the other nice thing about the cover letter is you can tell your story. You can say why you're unique, whether it's your background, where you grew up, maybe you studied abroad, things that wouldn't necessarily jump out if you're just looking at your resume. And then you can also hopefully talk about how you are passionate about the things that the employer is looking for, or just passionate about the issues in general that are in the position description. So this is your opportunity to show excitement for the job. So I I would totally agree that the resume is more important than the cover letter, but if they're asking for a cover letter, you should absolutely take it seriously. And then again, I know a lot of students and just a lot of people in general get a little bit of writer's block with cover letters because they're just different writing reach out to your career advisor, reach out, have you know, multiple people read through it because it just will help you know, put yourself at ease and you know, trust the experts. And, and I'd say that will be great advice and you know, a great way to have a strong cover letter. And the last thing I'd say is certainly it doesn't hurt to have a strong cover letter. It may not be the deciding factor, but it could be a tiebreaker. So, I know as someone who has applied to dozens of internships, I'm always thinking to myself, what mistakes am I making that I'm not noticing? So what do you think are like some of the top mistakes that students make when applying to things? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is just make sure you're dedicating enough time to the application materials and you got to weigh that. I mean, if you're busy with class and other things, you you can only spend a certain amount of time, but make sure you're putting in the time to you know have others review the application material, making sure you are hitting everything that they're asking for, not following directions is the easiest way an employer, say they get a hundred applicants and you didn't do something right, they can just toss it out. Not preparing for the interviews. The interviews is that next stage. That's where you can really sell yourself. We talked about ways you can prepare for interviews. 
making silly grammar mistakes, you are going to stand out if you make spelling errors or if you write the wrong organization because you're using a template, for example. Just make sure you're not making those, those silly mistakes. A couple other things, not selling yourself short. You know, sometimes we're a little humble or embarrassed to talk about why what you did in the current job or previous job is so important or why it's, it would be so helpful for this organization. But this is the time to talk yourself up. So sometimes people are shy about that and they're wondering why they're not getting a call back. But it's maybe because you're not really telling the full story. Um, and then one more specific thing, so I don't know if those will know the phrase transferable skills, but sometimes students don't think they're qualified for a, for a position because the very specific thing that they'll be working on in this new position is not something they've ever done. But I bet if you look at your previous work and volunteer experience, there's something that's pretty close. So telling that story of how you would transfer the skills you have to the new position, because almost every position you apply for should be you know, increasing the work you're doing, expanding on what you've done. So thinking about transferable skills is really important. The last thing I'll say is sometimes you're not making any mistakes. Sometimes you just don't get the job. And unfortunately, and I feel like I've had this with students, they're finishing second and third a lot. And that is frustrating. And it's okay to be frustrated. But if you keep trying, you are going to get that job. Because unfortunately, most of the time, employers can only hire one person. So it may not be you that time, but just keep trying and, you know, reflect every time. What, what could I do better? What could I improve with my application materials? That is a nice thing to hear sometimes. I think, I think the first time I went to um, the resume, like advising service at the, at the School of like Letters and Science, that's what they said to me. They're like, it happens sometimes. Yeah. Like, you were probably, they told you you were second. Don't, why are you worried? It's nice to hear, even if it doesn't sound great. We've talked a lot today. We've talked about a lot of things, but I'll give you this opportunity now. Was there anything we missed or anything you'd like to bring up? Anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, I'd like to circle back to public policy generally and then talk about okay. public school. So I like to talk about what sets public policy apart compared to other other majors, other areas of study. And really, public policy allows you to take issues from any topic, whether it's science, it's journalism, it's, it's history. It, everything is touched by public policy because there are laws that govern all of these things. So whatever you're interested in, whatever your major is, if you're interested in making change within that issue area, public policy is something that you really should consider uh, learning about. The other thing I want to say is obviously there has been some issues with evidence-based policies being attacked over the last handful of years. I think it's more important than ever that students get engaged and interested in public policy and just learn how important that evidence is to making informed decisions and informing good public policy. And with that, you know, trans translating that to the La Follette School, you know, both with our certificate and with our, uh, you know, our crown jewel of our graduate program, I truly believe that we're teaching students and training students and giving them the skills to go out and change the state of Wisconsin, change the world, you know, promoting the Wisconsin idea. So what makes me most excited and what gets me excited about coming to work each day is that I know each year we're going to be graduating students are going to be going out into those local government, state agencies, federal government private sector, not nonprofits, and they are going to be thinking about 
in an evidence-based way how to make the world better. And that gets me very excited about the future of public policy and you know, the future of these programs we're working on. Speaking of the future of things, um, our last question that we ask all of our guests, it's been a long year and a half. It's been a long, dark, trying year and a half. And looking back on all that, what is something you are hopeful for? Something that makes you feel good? Yeah. Well, it's funny, just yesterday afternoon, we had the opportunity to have a retirement party for one of our staff members, Marjorie Matthews. We stayed outside of the La Follette house. It was beautiful weather, but it was the first time in you know over a year and a half that I got to see some of my colleagues. It was the first time we've been hiring. There's the first time I actually saw our new colleagues in person. And you could just feel the excitement and the interest in getting back to as close to normal as we can in this coming uh, fall semester. I know it's a little scary. There's anxiety, including my own. But what I'm really excited about is there are also students that I haven't met in person that I helped teach and, you know, work with over this last year, you know, thinking about being able to interact with them in person this fall is getting me really excited. But again, I think the other thing I would specifically tell students is the fact that you've gone, have been a student during a pandemic means you are going to be the most prepared group of students going into the workforce that we have ever seen. You should be laughing at the question, what challenges have you faced in the past when you are asked that in an interview? So again, even beyond the La Follette School students, I get excited about the next five or 10 years because I'm hoping the students that have gone through this are going to be going into the world and saying, we're not going to make the same mistakes that we made previously. And we are the ones that are going to make sure policies change to ensure if something like this ever comes up again, we're going to be more prepared. So I guess when I think of hope, I think it has been a very difficult year, but I am excited about the younger generation lifting us up and taking the lessons learned and improving the world in the years to come. So I'm very excited about that as well. I think we're all feeling a little excited right now about it too. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. It was lovely to have you. And I'm sure we'd love to have you back in the future. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. And yeah, I look forward to the next one. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.